Well, so far in our journey through the book of Genesis, uh, we have been like foot soldiers in the army. What do I mean by that? Well, we have been marching through the terrain of Genesis on the ground. And we have been spending lots of time, haven't we, looking at the specific details of Abraham's life and God's covenant with him. However, with Abraham now behind us and Isaac and Jacob now in front of us, we're going to transition from being foot soldiers to being, let's say, fighter pilots in the sky. In other words, rather than walking through the text of Genesis, we will now fly over the top of the story so that we see the big picture of what God is doing and what he's about to do next. So that said, this morning, I will be preaching on Genesis 23 through Genesis 36. Genesis 23 through 36. Uh, Have your Bibles open. Uh, I will uh, be indicating to you what passages we're going to be looking at. I won't be going through every detail or even giving attention to every story as much fun as that would be. Instead, we're going to be up high in the air, flying on top, looking at the big picture of the story of Jacob. And my hope is that at the end of the sermon, you will have a better idea of who Jacob is and why God chose to love him based on his good purposes to fulfill his covenant to Abraham. That said, on the outline in your bulletin, I give you just two points that are going to guide us through these passages. Number one, in Genesis chapters 23 through 27, 23 through 27, the covenant blessings to Abraham will come through Jacob. Let me say that one more time. In Genesis 23 through 27, what we're going to find is that the covenant blessings to Abraham, the blessings that we have been studying, these blessings are now going to be passed on and brought to further fulfillment through Jacob. Last week, we rejoiced, didn't we? We rejoiced with Abraham and with Sarah as the promised heir finally, finally was born. We also could barely stand to look as Abraham almost sacrificed his promised heir, Isaac, only to see God supernaturally intervene and provide a substitutionary sacrifice. God, having redeemed the promised offspring, that was, remember, that was really part of the theme of last week's sermon, redeeming his promised offspring, once again, securing the future of his people, is now going to tell us about, his, about Abraham's son, Isaac, and then Isaac's son, Jacob, and how God continued once more to fulfill his promises to Abraham through Jacob. So, 
if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. The theme that I want you to see throughout this this sermon and these texts is this, that God is faithful to his covenant promises and God is full of steadfast love for his covenant people. I'm going to say that one more time or write this down if you need to. God is faithful to his covenant promises and God is full of steadfast love, which we just sang about. He's full of steadfast love for his people. Look at Genesis 23 with me. In Genesis 23, Sarah dies. And as Abraham buries her, the reader begins to sense that the story is, is transitioning on to Isaac and his children. In Genesis 24, Abraham, knowing that his days are coming to an end, he looks for a wife for his son Isaac. And in a providential series of events, a wife is found for Isaac in Rebekah. Genesis 24 begins by saying that the Lord had blessed Abraham in some things? No, all things, all things. And we begin to to understand that the Lord is is continuing to bless Abraham and will bless, bless Abraham even after he's gone. He's going to bless Abraham by helping him find a wife for his son, but not among the Canaanites but instead from Abraham's own country and kindred. Notice how important it is where Isaac's wife comes from, where Rebekah comes from. Should she come from the Canaanites, the the covenant promises of God could be in jeopardy once again. You see how this keeps happening Another threat to the covenant promises of God. Now, why would this be the case? Well, remember, Abraham's line is significant. And should Isaac go to the surrounding nations, those who don't worship Abraham's God, he risks at that point his line being lost forever. But once more, The Lord comes through, doesn't he? And he provides a wife for Isaac, making it very clear that Rebekah is the woman he is to marry. Again, notice how this theme keeps coming up to the surface, the theme of last week's message. The Lord will provide. And that is exactly what he does here. We see this theme explicitly when Rebekah is found because Abraham's servant, he's one who praises God. He says in Genesis 24, listen to this, Genesis 24, 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love. There it is. And his faithfulness toward his master. That's the thing we're focusing on. God is sovereign. He is in control. He is orchestrating even these 
seemingly small details and events so that His covenant promises, His steadfast love, His covenant love, I love that phrase, just saying that phrase, His covenant love is shown to His people once more. But here we see something remarkable. Like Sarah, before her, we learn in Genesis 25 that Rebekah is barren. Isaac, being a, a man of God, following after the way of his father, he prays to the Lord. And the Lord grants Rebekah children. But unlike Sarah's pregnancy, Rebekah's is complicated by the fact that she has two Not just one, two sons within her. Two. These are not just any twins. Genesis 25, 22 says that these children struggled together within her. Now, ladies, if you have had children before, Perhaps you understand well what it's like for that child within you to kick or move, maybe cause you a lot of discomfort. But this is something beyond that. This is not, this is not the normal kicks and turns. Notice what the text says. These two boys are struggling with one another within her womb. In fact, so intense is this fight, this struggle, this wrestling match within Rebecca that she goes to the Lord and inquires of the Lord as to why this is happening. This is not something that's normal and ordinary. Listen to what the Lord says in response. This is Genesis 25, 23. This is such a key response. He says, two nations are in your womb. Not just two children, two nations. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And listen to this. The older shall serve the younger. And you have to understand that in a culture where the... The firstborn was to be the one to receive the inheritance, to carry on the legacy of his father. To say this would have been shocking and disruptive. The struggle between these two infants is in some ways prophetic, signifying the great struggle to come between them and their offspring. But there's a twist. The custom, as I just said, was that the older would rule. That he would receive the blessing and the younger would be his servant. But God changes this entirely around. And his plan is just the reverse. To Rebecca's surprise, the older will actually be subservient to the younger. Isn't it fascinating that the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 
has something to say about Jacob and Esau? In Romans 9, Paul explains how it was not the case that all those physically born to Abraham were God's people. Instead, God's people consisted of those children, what Paul says, the the children of the promise. Ishmael, for example, was not the promised heir, if you remember back to those chapters in Genesis. He was not the promised heir, though he was a physical descendant of Abraham. But it was Isaac. But Paul has in mind far more than just physical offspring here. He has in mind those who are spiritually saved. This raises the question, what is such a salvation due to? Paul takes us all the way back to to Jacob and Esau to show that though both of these were born to Rebekah, God only chose one of them, Jacob, to, to be the recipient of God's blessings, the Abrahamic blessing. What was the basis for this choice? Was it something that Jacob and Esau had done? Not at all. Perhaps this surprises you, but notice what Paul says in Romans 9. He says that God's predestined choice was not based on anything he foresaw in Jacob or Esau. Instead, Paul says, it was based purely and only on God's mercy and grace. His, what Paul says is his call to salvation. As Paul says in Romans 9, this is verses 10 through 13, though they, and notice how he prefaces this, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but why? Because of Him who calls. She was told. The older will serve the younger. And then Paul, again quoting from the Old Testament, says, as it is written. In other words, this was promised. And it was written for your sake, New Covenant believer. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What a surprise. What a surprise. God did not choose Esau, the oldest son, but to our surprise, he chose Jacob. Jacob. Why is this so important? I mean, why in the world is Paul bringing this into Romans? It's so important that God chooses Jacob instead of Esau, because it prohibits anyone from presuming upon God's grace as if they have somehow contributed something of their own to it. Paul here didn't just have in mind the historical destiny of national Israel 
but the salvation of all those who are true children of Abraham, including you and me, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. What a great comfort. Notice the word I'm using, comfort. What a great comfort this should be for you as a Christian. God did not elect you, predestine you, as Paul says, because of anything you would do. As if his electing choice was somehow conditioned upon something within you. That's our temptation, right? There's got to be something within me. No. You're just like Jacob. Sinful. Rebellious. So am I. Now, God's saving promises to you will be fulfilled because they depend completely upon His gracious will. As the story continues, we see this struggle between Jacob and Esau play itself out. Esau comes out of Rebekah. The text says, red which has a lot to do with his name. And the text says his body was like a hairy cloak. Imagine that. Maybe some of you can. Esau becomes a skillful hunter, a man of the field. What could make a father more proud, right? Bringing in tasty, tasty meat. But Jacob is, he's different. He's, well, he's kind of the opposite of Esau, isn't he? He's a quiet man. It says he dwells in tents. And so tension begins to build between these two. And we vividly see that Jacob is, is the one, not Esau, who will receive the Abrahamic blessing despite all the mistakes he makes. Again, highlighting God's grace and unconditional mercy. Notice what happens. First, Look at Genesis 25. At the very end of Genesis 25, Esau, he makes a terrible mistake, doesn't he? And Jacob is deceptive enough, something we will see is rooted in his very character. He's deceptive enough to take advantage of his brother. Esau comes in from hunting exhausted. And he essentially sells his soul for a bowl of stew. That tells you how hungry he was. Jacob, though, he refuses to give Esau food until Esau hands over his birthright, which would have included all the blessings Esau would have received, double blessings from Isaac as the firstborn, blessings far greater than anyone else. Not only does this incident create enormous tension between Jacob and Esau, and not only does it reveal the beginning of Jacob's conniving ways. But most fundamentally, it reveals that Esau will not be the son who carries on the Abrahamic covenant and its promises. For this man is willing to sell it all away for a bowl of stew. Jacob's deceptiveness is only going to to escalate. In Genesis 26, 
It is Jacob, not Esau, who receives Isaac's blessing. But how? How does this happen? By the way, just a side note, you have to remember that things worked very differently back then than they do today. Perhaps this is really strange for us. Your success in life was largely determined by your order of birth. And whatever inheritance you received from your father. So to not receive the blessing would have been a huge deal. It would have sealed your fate. Okay, that aside, what happened? Isaac knew his days were few. So he tells Esau, go hunting and come back and make make my favorite meal. Isaac would then give to Esau his blessing, bestowing on him the patriarchal role so that he would receive his father's inheritance and reign over the family. Notice, don't miss this, notice, though, that Isaac has completely ignored and rejected the oracle of God in Genesis 25, where the Lord very clearly said it was not to be the oldest, but the youngest who is to be the heir. Rebecca overheard this father-son conversation, and so she hatches a scheme. It is, it's hard to know if this scheme means Rebecca is trying to obey the oracle of the Lord that was given to her, to her when she bore these children, or if she's purely acting upon the favoritism she has for Jacob. It's hard to know which of these is happening. Maybe it's both. I don't know. But either way, she comes up with this plan, and Jacob is to pretend to be his brother Esau. What a genius plan. What a deceptive plan. He's to pretend to be Esau so that he will get the blessing instead of his brother. So Jacob brings in his father's meal, disguises himself wearing hairy animal garments, and Isaac, notice in the text, he's immediately suspicious, isn't he? Because the meal, first of all, it's come so quickly... And then when he's, he's, he's hearing, he, when, when he's hearing Jacob come in, though it's supposed to be Isaac, he's hearing Jacob's voice. Not Esau's. Nonetheless, when he feels Jacob's arms and smells that strong, distinct smell of the field, where Esau would have been, he's persuaded enough to go forward and to give his blessing. Now, what does this blessing consist of? This is crucial, isn't it? Look at Genesis 27, verses 27 through 29. Listen to what he says. This is his blessing. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you 
and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Did you listen? Did you listen to the words that he chose to use? The blessing includes land, nations. You see, this blessing carries on the covenant blessing God gave to Abraham. And now that covenant blessing is to come through Jacob. Even if, in God's providence, Jacob secures it through deceptive means. God's providence often works in mysterious ways. This is a reminder that surely God's electing choice is not because of Jacob, his good works. No, the man is deceptively sinful. God's choice is due to his good purpose of his own will. And so God chooses in the most peculiar circumstance. He chooses to surprise us and to love Jacob. As Paul says, hate Esau. Jacob's deception, it ruins Esau. Esau returns and he is just enraged at his brother. As you can imagine. He now, he says, he now has been cheated not once, but twice. And when he begs his father, he begs him for a blessing. Just any blessing, anything. What he receives is not so much a blessing as it is a curse. He will be a servant to his brother. And yet, at the end of this, there's a small glimmer of hope that such servitude will not last forever as Esau will throw off the yoke of his brother from his neck. Which brings us to our second point in the second half of these chapters. In Genesis 28-36, through we see that the Lord shows Jacob steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord shows Jacob his steadfast love and his faithfulness. So camp with me for a second here in Genesis 28 through 36. In Genesis 28, Isaac sends Jacob away to take a wife from one of the daughters of Laban, who's Rebekah's brother. What I want you to pay attention to, though, is that specifically what Isaac says to Jacob in Genesis 28. This is at the beginning of the chapter, verses 3 through 4. Listen to what he says. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Notice how the language of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is being used here. Be fruitful. Multiply. Like a new Adam. That you may become a company of peoples. There's that Abrahamic blessing again. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land. There it is again. More of the Abrahamic blessing. Take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. In other words, Isaac is declaring that the Abrahamic covenant is to continue through Jacob, for it will be his offspring who inherit the land 
of promise. This is confirmed when God gives Jacob an amazing dream in Genesis 28. Look at Genesis 28. In verses 10 and following, we read about this strange dream that he has. A ladder that reaches to heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. Above it is the Lord himself who declares, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. God himself is speaking to Jacob. And he is reassuring Jacob that the covenant he made with Abraham, it will be fulfilled. How is Jacob to know this? Because the God who is speaking to him is a God who's faithful to His Word. He opens the heavens in order for His Word to descend and being made known and certain. He's made a promise, and he will keep his promise. And no one, no one shall thwart his will and his plan. Jacob recognizes that God is with him. As he was with Abraham and Isaac, too. And so he names this place Bethel. Saying that it is... This is the house of God. It's the very gate of heaven. And in that moment, Jacob declares that since God will be with him and keep him, he shall be his God. Do you see how God is at work in Jacob? Isn't this so often true of us? Jacob starts off, and there's still a long ways to go for Jacob, but he starts off a very deceptive man. But God is at work in his own character so that now we're beginning to see signs, even if they're small signs, signs that Jacob, he's starting to rely upon the Lord. He's starting to trust in God's covenant promises. We would be mistaken, though, to assume that the road, of, the road ahead is an easy one. If you know the story, you know it's a hard one. In Genesis 29, Jacob falls in love with Rachel. And he's determined to marry her. What could go wrong, right? Jacob, the master of deceit, is himself deceived by one who's even a bigger deceiver, Laban. And out of all times, Jacob is deceived on the very night of his wedding. 
as Laban swaps Leah for Rachel so that Jacob marries the oldest daughter first. It's so sad, it's almost comical in a very twisted way. Nevertheless, in the end, though it comes through much struggle with Laban, Jacob does get to marry Rachel. And the lineage of Abraham and Isaac continues as God continues to prosper Jacob. Jacob's difficulties, though, they don't end here, do they? They don't end. In Genesis 30, a feud, a very famous feud, a family feud, breaks out between Leah and Rachel as these two sisters are filled with jealousy and they fight over who will bear Jacob his sons. Sad, isn't it? How the text is just silent when it comes to Jacob. He doesn't even say a word. Silent. He's totally passive in this whole affair. He does not lead his family in righteousness as he should, but he goes along with this feud. But perhaps Jacob's biggest challenge would come in Genesis 32 through 33 as Jacob has to face his biggest fear of all. And what is that? It's facing his brother Esau again. You can imagine how scared Jacob must have been. Sometimes, isn't this true? I know this is true in my life. Sometimes when we are in a very frightening moment, pushes us, forces us to rely upon the Lord when we previously may not have done that at all. This is the case with Jacob. Likely, he, he thought, my brother is going to kill me. After all, that, that was how things ended previously. Esau was just waiting for the time of grieving to pass until he had his chance to kill his own brother. If this was to happen now, the covenant promises would be extinguished. Notice how things change. Previously, Jacob was very passive. And suddenly, he's a man of action. Planning, strategizing, so that he can show his brother Esau, he's a changed man. He's entirely different now. He's one who intends to give, not take, even give back to Esau what he has stolen. He's a man who now desires reconciliation and peace. The night before Jacob, all this is about to go down. In Genesis 32, something unbelievable happens. This is extremely rare. Jacob wrestles with God. He wrestles with God. During the night, and the text indicates until the morning, this was, this was no five-minute match, this man suddenly appears, and Jacob wrestles with him. Though Jacob prevails, the man puts Jacob's hip out of joint, something that will forever mark Jacob and Israel will pay attention to. 
Jacob, however, notice Jacob. This is so Jacob, isn't it? Jacob will not let him go. He refuses to let him go until Jacob gets the blessing. Seem to have an indicator here that Jacob knows he's not just wrestling anyone. The blessing came with a name change. For the man declared that Jacob's name was now to be Israel. Why? Because Jacob, the text says, had striven with God and with men, and he had prevailed. So Jacob named that place Peniel, for there he saw God face to face, and his life was spared. Perhaps you're wondering, what in the world do we make of this very strange encounter? It's a good question. Keep in mind, Jacob was scared to death to meet his brother Esau. So when he wrestles with God, he won't stop until he's guaranteed God's blessing. Though Jacob is such a, he's such a difficult man, isn't he? He's a very sinful one. Even having to wrestle with God here, indeed wrestling with God seems to characterize this man's entire life. God promises once more, he's with Jacob. He's with him. He's going to bless him. And Jacob, I will remain faithful to my promises. The most immediate implication of this is the guarantee that Jacob, he's going to survive this encounter with his brother Esau. He's not just going to survive, he will come out successful. To Jacob's relief, his brother Esau was ready for reconciliation. And the two brothers who struggled since they had been born, before they were born, they were finally able to reunite. I think this is an indication that God, just as he said he would, he continued to be with Jacob. He brought him back to his father's house and his father's land. And Jacob, Jacob too, recognizes this. He recognizes that the Lord has shown him his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And as a result, we see Jacob grow spiritually. Though he has much growing to do, we see him grow by leaps and bounds. As we see this man who started off so deceptive, he's now a man who's relying upon the Lord. The end of this story of Jacob in Genesis 25, Jacob tells, this would, this would have been unthinkable at the start. Jacob tells his household, put away your foreign gods. Purify yourself, he says. Jacob then makes an altar to God, the God who answers him in his distress, the God who is with him wherever he goes. 
And so God called Jacob Israel. And he reiterated once more that Jacob was to bring to further fulfillment the covenant promises God had made to his forefather Abraham. Are you, are you here this morning as someone who is struggling to trust in the God who called you out of darkness and into the, his marvelous light? Is that you? Are you tired, weary, Not sure you can continue this pilgrimage God has set you on. Are you you someone who is devastated with your own sin? Your lack of faithfulness to God. Is that you? Unsure whether God will really finish the salvation he started in in you? Doesn't feel like it. Doesn't seem like it. Doesn't look like it. You feel alone? As if God is he's not with you? As if he's He's no longer for you. Do you feel as though the gate of heaven itself has been shut up and has shut you out? I've been there. At the end of this story, I'm reminded of the first chapter of John's gospel. Jesus has an amazing encounter with a future follower named Nathaniel. When Nathaniel approaches Jesus for the first time, Jesus says, here is an Israelite in whom Isn't this ironic? There's no deceit. Hearing Nathaniel's shock as to how Jesus would know him, Jesus then tells Nathaniel that he saw him while he was still under the fig tree. How's that possible? Nathaniel, realizing Jesus was, realizing that that he was not talking to a mere man anymore, but the long-awaited Messiah. Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You know what Jesus says in response to him? This is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. 
you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Sound familiar? Jesus intentionally turns our attention back to the dream of Jacob when he refers to angels ascending and descending. But this time, people, there's a huge difference. While God was at the top of the ladder and Jacob at the bottom with angels ascending and descending, now Jesus is the one whom the angels ascend and descend upon. What's Jesus' point? While Jacob called the place Bethel because it was a gate to heaven, now a much greater gate, a greater way has been made to heaven and it's through the Son of Man himself. Isn't that good news? There's a new Bethel and it's found wherever Jesus is. The story of Jacob demonstrates that God, if I was describing you a minute ago, listen. This story demonstrate that God demonstrates that God was faithful. He was faithful to his covenant promises. And he was and he still is full of steadfast love for his people. How much more so has God demonstrated his faithfulness and his steadfast love than by sending us his own son to give us access to heaven? Fellowship Baptist Church, don't forget that you are children of Abraham. And therefore, the same steadfast love that God showed to Jacob has been shown to you in Jesus Christ. The one who has planted our feet firmly upon a new Bethel, giving us free access to the throne of grace. Let's pray. Lord, it's because of Jesus Christ that we can approach your throne. It's because of him that we have access to heaven itself. And Lord, we know this morning that your covenant promises are true and your steadfast love, as it was given to Jacob, it has been given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name, we rejoice this morning. Amen.